What's up, all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart coming to you on Thursday, October 13th from Oakland, California. How y'all doing out there in this fall season that continues to descend upon us? Getting a little a little friskier in the evenings, but we're, but we're in California, so we can't really complain. Um, my guest today is an old dear friend of mine. Uh, we met going on 12 years ago uh, when I was at SF State. Uh, I decided to join the international program and they asked me if I wanted to be a student ambassador and mentor an exchange student. And I thought that would be a really cool experience. So I agreed and the student that they put under my tender care was none other than a tall, handsome Danish lad who went by the name of Tor. And uh, we became friends. Tor is the man, one of the most genuine and kind and just interested pers- people that I've ever met. I will say he's genuinely interested in life and people and things in the world. A uh, great person to talk to. Um, so we became friends and we had a bunch of cool adventures. I really had a good time showing tour West Marin County and, and my home, brought him and his friends and some bunch of other international students out to uh, my mom's little house in Bolinas and she cooked us a big soup. And uh, we sat and went around the circle. Uh, we had people from, I think, 12 or 13 different countries. And we had everybody read their horoscope in a very, uh, you know, the most kind of stereotypical version of their accent, which was hilarious. Uh, but Tor, uh, later, you know, through our friendship, I was convinced uh, to go study in his country of Denmark tour is from Denmark and uh, I didn't know much about the country before I met him. And, you know, through our friendship, I really decided to just roll the dice and go experience it and explore. And it was very transformational for me at that age, that, that tender age of 22, 23. Uh, and then it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I, I checked in on my boy tour and came out to see, to find that he uh, is actually a correspondent now. He's a the European correspondent for the Danish newspaper Information, and he's currently based in Paris, France. And uh, I was like, hey, my buddy's on TV. Hey, my buddy's on TV in front of the EU. He's a talking head. Uh and I was very tickled by that and wanted to get him on to just talk about that experience of becoming a journalist and and what his philosophy was uh, regarding reporting and journalism. And he did not disappoint. We go into a bunch of different topics on this episode. Uh, and my favorite part, you know, kind of two-thirds of the way in is is when we start to really get into the philosophy of journalism and how that relates to the current world situation. So hope you guys find this one interesting. Uh, I certainly did. And uh, just, I'm so grateful uh, 
for tour taking the time to come on the Bartcast. Thanks, buddy. I know you're busy. So without further ado, let me introduce to you my friend Tor Keller on this episode 57 of the Bartcast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise. <laughs> the water, yo. The water's on our side, yo. We're running with the water. It's the best. Tor, what's up, man? Welcome to the Bartcast. Yeah, I've been looking forward for so many years to participate on the Bartcast. You know, it's it's been a long time coming, so it's good. Uh, you know, it's good to have some international episodes. You know, crossing cultures, crossing borders. You know, it's, it's for Bartcast International. This is a, a very big deal. You know, a man of your stature. A man of the people, <laughs> a voice of a nation, you know? Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was funny. I, you know, for all of you tuning in out there, uh, me and Tor met, what was it, ele- uh, 11 years ago, I think? Yeah, 10, I think it was no, back 12, in... 12 years back, ago? Back in 2010, yeah. Yeah, so we met at San Francisco State through the international program. And, uh, and you were my, uh, mentee. I was your mentor yeah. or whatever, <laughs> student advisor, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I was, involved your, in... I was your little European baby. <laughs> You're my little, my little big European Viking baby that, uh, resulted in me living in Denmark for seven months at the end. But, uh, it's funny because, you know, as with the international community, we keep tabs, you know, digitally online uh but it'd been a couple years and i think i just i was on like instagram one day and i just saw you like with like the microphone doing a news broadcast and i was like wait what what's going on with with tour and then i <laughs> i check in and i find out that you're like one of the talking heads in in uh you know in the in the media sphere of europe and um i think that's maybe a good place for us to start can you just uh, kind of give us an idea of, um, you know, what's, what's your role? What are, what, what you, what have you been up to? Uh, how do you tell people, you know, what, you, what you do? Yeah, sure. So if we go all the way back to San Francisco, I mean, I was on an exchange program there and, uh, I didn't do much of what I was supposed to do while I was there, but, uh, Basically, I was in journalism school and uh, I was studying to be a journalist. And uh, one of my last semesters was in California. And uh, and so after that, I, I came back home uh, and I finished. And uh, yeah, since then, for like 12 years, I've been working as a journalist, uh, doing lots of different stuff. Uh, started out by being unemployed <laughs> for quite a while. Uh, I took up running, but then I thought, uh, this sucks. I'm just running while thinking <laughs> about the fact that I'm unemployed. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I prefer to sit down while doing that. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, yeah, after a while, I got a, I got a, like a three month contract at a radio station. 
getting up at uh, four o'clock in the morning to, to do the morning program and just like, yeah, phone people in the morning to get them on the show, like a national uh, radio station, but not a big one. Um, so it was quite, quite tough work. You know, you in Denmark, the bars are open so really late. So sometimes I would go to work while I could see people, you know, still trying to get in contact with that girl in the bar by rolling <laughs> by on my, on my bicycle on my way to work. Um, so, but I mean, that, that just, uh, yeah, it, it, it took a while to, to, you know, start a career in, in journalism. But then after this, I got promoted. I did like, I was the editor of the morning program. And then I got a position as a, as a, as a European correspondent for a business newspaper in Brussels in Belgium. And, uh, after a while I got tired of that and I, I moved to, to France and uh, yeah, one of the reasons why I moved to France was because uh, I met a, a beautiful French girl in, in uh, San Francisco back when we were living there. And yeah, we're still together. So wow. yeah, I've been slowly, you know, moving towards France uh, little by little. So now I've got a job as a yeah correspondent for another Danish newspaper working out of Paris, but like covering European affairs. Um, which is a very, very busy subject uh, these days that you, <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, lots of stuff to do. So journalism uh, for a newspaper, that's what I what I do now. But it's, it took a while to build up to, to get into it the, the, to this degree. Do they have, do you, like, what's the title that they give you? What do they put on the little Chiron in the bottom of the screen when you're talking? They say Tor Keller, European Correspondent, and then the newspaper, which is called Information. So that's very international. That's very uh, to the point, you know, literal yeah. <laughs> information. Yeah. But it's the same in French. So it's it's like an all-around title. You know, you can use that anywhere. Whereas if you work for the newspaper, Morgenavisen, it's a little bit less international. Gotcha. The uh... So you work for a newspaper. Are you doing... But you're, are you doing print as well as video then? Well, for the newspaper, I'm only doing print. And usually like pretty long articles where you have some time to do them and so on. Nice. Um, which is kind of like a, a dying you know, breed of yeah. journalism in, in, in this world. But in Denmark, we still have quite a few newspapers and they're actually doing fairly okay. Um, so I, I do that. And then the big revolution is that now we do you know the sound as well so i record my articles as well because we found that a lot of people preferred you know to walk around or do stuff while mm -hmm. they, they listen to it um so we started doing that as well and then and do some on television i do some french radio sometimes too but it's like outside of my you know professional uh, life it's more like a something i do on the side that uh, i think is fun do you get call, do you get solicited like do do other publications call you up for interviews is that what what leads to you being on TV Well actually the thing is that that um, we don't have a lot of Danish journalists in France uh, we just had a, a national election we actually had two in France um, so all of a sudden they were like what are we gonna do we don't have anybody who speaks a language who lives there so uh, we have to find somebody who does. And so that turned out to be me. And so I did a lot of, a lot of TV uh, during that period to tell, you know, 
Danish people, what's going on in France, what are they talking about, what's the subjects, uh, who's going to win, and, and so on. And, and so, yeah, it's basically, you know, the Danish TV, radio, and so on, who asks me to participate and tell them what's going on in, in, in the country. So by following your heart, you actually found this uh, unique niche where you're like the most qualified guy for this very specific situation. Yeah, but I mean that's that, that's what you need to do. You need to find you know something specific that other people haven't you know haven't you know they don't have the the the, the they haven't found the way to go to to do that. I mean, not, French is not like a, a common language in Denmark, and I only learned it through my you know family-in-law and and being here. So it's uh it's it's been quite a travel to get to this point i remember the first couple of like dinners with my family-in-law and i was just sitting there not you know understanding like every sixth word or something um and not able to speak anything and now i can i can you know text my dad-in-law about like football games and so on and nice so it's been a long it's been a long travel to get to this point but yeah you need to find something that's unique doesn't you know carve out your little niche in in the market whatever don't I know it, brother? That's what I'm trying to do myself. Um, are you where are you where are you right now? Are you in Copenhagen or are you in, in France? Sitting in my flat in Paris in, in France where oh, we've nice. lived for five years now. Oh awesome. Yeah. So it's are been you, a while. Did you guys get married? We got like like kind of like like a technical marriage or something. Like technical a technical marriage, nice. <laughs> very well, romantic term. <laughs> well, it's just that, that, that France is like a very, it's it's a very secular uh, country. So you can mm-hmm. do everything the religious way or the civil society way, well, like the, gotcha. the, the non, non-religious way. Mm-hmm. So we just went to the, the local city hall and, and got it done. It's not a marriage. It's like a registered partnership or whatever. It does give me the right to whatever what happens when medical uh, decisions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 yeah all that kind of stuff. And the same oh, for man. her. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> it's last oh, year. It's actually, it's one year ago. So that you've been living. Oh, that you guys have been in that. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, it, I think it's interesting. This, um, I know in the United States, there's, you know, our press has, never been in in a more dire situation and a lot of the newspapers have cut the budgets for things like investigative reporting they're unwilling to invest the money that it takes to like to do research for six months eight months on a story to write a longer story and i know a lot of journalists in this country uh through uh you know the internet podcasting this fragmentation of the audience. I'm seeing more and more journalists uh, just start to create their own, you know, mini publications on like Substack or, you know, uh, Matt Taibbi is one of my favorite. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's a really really good investigative reporter. Um, And he used to write for Rolling Stones, I believe. But um, have you ever, are are people doing that as well in Europe? Do you see journalists kind of leaving these, larger institutions to, or, or is there still more, more energy and trust in the system? Well, I think there's still, there's a lot more public money for one. 
I think that you know, in in a lot of countries, that finances uh, enough of the media for them to to run a business. Um, uh, if you want to do like this kind of journalism, where you have multiple clients, where you're more like a freelance personality, or you run your own media, I think you need to be in one of the hubs where there's a lot of money. So you have to be in Brussels and work for maybe several publications or so on, or you have to yeah, really be in the center of, of uh, politics because in the US, you know, you have one audience, basically. You have, I know you have several different, you know, sections of society and so mm -hmm. on, but but uh, from, from like a, a language point of view, you know, you can speak one language and then technically uh, communicate with most people. Whereas that's not at all the, the case in Europe. I mean, every little country like mine, which has 6 million people, to France, which has uh, 66 million people, they've got their own, you know, national uh, political scene and, and their own interests. And they don't have this common um, audience where you could, you know, talk to a lot of people and, and find revenue through that. Mm-hmm. So I've I've thought about it, you know. I've I've got like maybe like four and a half thousand followers on Twitter. Ooh. It's not enough. Yeah, but it's not enough. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's it's not enough to to. to it's like it's like a, it's a small fish kind of thing. And yeah. if I was to tell them, you know, I'm gonna do like my own stories about France, for instance, or, or Europe, I think I would find it hard to to build up a, a public. I think it's also because people aren't used to paying for news. I mean, when we started rolling out the internet uh, sections of newspapers, everything was free. And now over the last couple of years, we've rolled that back a bit. You know, now you meet the paywall and so on when you, when you go to a newspaper's uh, website. And um, and people on a general level, you know, then they don't like that. They prefer free stuff. <laughs> Right. I mean, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much uh, bullshit uh, um, going around the internet is because it's free. Right. Um, yeah, totally. It is kind so of a I, chicken I, and the egg thing, right? Like, I think that there's something psychologically different about putting a quarter or 50 cents into a newspaper rack and getting a physical thing that feels like, yeah, this has value, even if it's like, value for 24 hours or something. We have this physical thing in our hands and in the, in the digital space, I I'm guilty of it too. I'll hit a paywall and I'll be like, guess I'm not going to read this article today. You know, mm. it's, you got to get out the credit card and then it's all these forms. And I think, uh, I think that there is a, there is like a, a need for, it could almost be like a micro, there could be like this model where, you know, people are paying 25 cents or like you have like some sort of internet wallet that's deducting very small amounts, but you make it so easy that everybody's like, yeah, I'll give five cents to the paper or whatever, you know? And like you do that a million times or a couple million times or whatever. And then that can be like a legitimate revenue stream, but it does, there has been that, I, I get what you're saying. There has been that shift in, just the psychology around information. And I think because so many of us are so over saturated in information, it, it can be hard to value it in the same way. I think we're still reckoning as a, as a global society with that fact. I know in this country, certainly it's, you know, 
it's sure i mean and 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 you can find information all the time so why would you pay for some information when you can get some other information for free unless you're really you know looking for something specific or and that's what we're trying to do as as a media not just us but all the the media try to create habits and a close relationship between the readers and uh, the newspapers in a you know more profound way and than what we did before. I think back in you know in the eighties, uh, the nineties, for newspaper executives, you know there was just a certain revenue stream from people reading the newspaper. You didn't even have to ask them what they liked and what they didn't like, because you are the only you know the only band in in town. Mm-hmm. And now uh, there's, you know, we have influencers, we have YouTubers, we have uh, TikTokers, we have like uh, stuff that I don't even know about because I'm too old. <laughs> um, but but there's so many, you know, people competing for the attention of of, uh, of the public, and I know I can understand it myself. I when I, as you say, when I hit a paywall, unless my employer has some sort of, uh, you know log in for that site I, I probably won't see it i probably won't read it right um unless it's a very specific specific thing that i really need to read then i'll maybe do a login and pay the money for like a month or something but then i will immediately put in my uh agenda you know delete <laughs> yeah yeah delete delete this in one month because i don't want to sure. pay more for okay. it I could benefit from doing that more, I think, in my own life. Um, yeah. But... Do you have a specific focus that, like, do you, what what kind of things do you cover? What do you have? A, are you a general kind of news reporter? Or is there a specific uh, kind of genre that you're focusing on? So my newspaper is like a center left with the emphasis on left mm-hmm. in a Danish uh, society, which is a, a social democratic society uh, newspaper. So it's it's fairly to the left. Traditionally, it was founded uh, in uh, during the the Second World War, uh, and uh, we've been you know doing a publication since 1943. And uh, when the war ended, the newspaper took over the the rooms and the production of the the space where the Nazis were publicating there newspaper and they took it back and they said now you know we've liberated Denmark and we're out of the shadows so it's a it's a it's a newspaper that has a very strong um history um I mostly do politics and economy and society but always kind of with a link to the first two things I said politics and economy I mean that's very much what gets the blood flowing mm-hmm. for our, our readers. Mm-hmm. We also have a very big uh, cultural section. And I think I've done that a couple of times. I've written about like exhibitions or stuff I visited, but it's not my speciality. So mostly the yeah politics. And there's been so much stuff going on since I, I got this job uh, in August last year. And I think three days later, you know, the US left Afghanistan. Um, we've had know the rising energy prices already during the fall last year and uh, this spring you know it's just been crazy with the russian invasion of uh, ukraine Uh, we had the french presidential elections in the spring as well and then we had parliamentary elections after that 
and just the whole political system and, and you know the economy dealing with the consequences of the Russian invasion and you know sanctions and so on it's just been a it's been a huge subject I mean I've I had like three or four months where I was like okay I feel very very old right now yeah but yeah, then I mean, some... a, lot, a lot of a lot to write about I'm sure yeah, but it's also just the you know the, the psych psychological weight of these things. Having to think about these things, like you, you, they don't leave you when you stop working on them. Yeah, yeah. I you was going to ask they... you that, because um, I know you know, especially in this country, like I've had in my own way. To, I I had my own you know, kind of big political moment during the shut during like the pandemic and the lockdowns and you know i think the last time that's happened to me was probably pretty close to when we met at sf state in 2009 with all the politics that were going on and both times i got to this space place where i was just really anxious all the time mm. and stressed sure. and unhappy and i was grateful because it was my brother that reminded me like hey dude like you're not wrong. Like, like you have these really thought out points that are logical and they make sense. But like, but from an emotional standpoint, you seem less happy and you're having a harder time, like connecting with people because you're caught up on these arguments. So I kind of had to take a step back and like, let go of, you know, the, it, it, it can, I think it, sometimes it can become a, an exercise almost like you're like, you're like hitting yourself, you know, like a flagellation thing where you're like, you know, you feel, uh, like a, you feel like this, pre this pressure to, to stay informed or to be, you know, to be communicating a specific ideology or a specific opinion or perspective. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, as someone who's, job it is to uh engage in the larger conversation the national conversation to help other people form their opinions and then to inform people about the you know the factual realities do you have a uh like what's your process like you know when you start to get in that space because i would imagine that it could be like you said psychologically it can at, at times very exhausting to to be living in that all the time yeah sure and the pandemic was a very we had a very harsh lockdown in france you know we had two months where you couldn't leave your house yeah um you could leave it for one hour and you had to bring a little piece of paper stating you know why were you leaving the house um i'm going grocery shopping or whatever um so i mean we were lucky we, we went to uh i um girlfriend's uh family's house in normandy and there was a nice garden and stuff so you could go outside but uh, yeah there's a lot of a lot of thinking you know you like start to think you know is this it you know did, did was that the good years and now mm -hmm. the bad years are coming you know right yeah because i guess i guess some people have been thinking the same things you know just when second world war broke out or you know when you had the the plague in europe or mm -hmm. whatever <laughs> back in the days so you could get into those negative thoughts where you think okay this is all it's all gonna end like this and obviously it didn't and, you know now i'm taking the metro every day without wearing a mask and, and and everything is is fine i think there's 
was still a concern about the, the pandemic and so on, but it's not something that takes over your life the same way. It doesn't fill you with fear of what's going to happen to all of us. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you know, nuclear war as a threat arrives. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, just when we got out of that, and then you start to think, ah, I feel like they're really going after me. You know, it's just like it's some kind of weird uh, matrix simulation I'm living in where they're like testing, you know, what's the worst scenarios we can bring on this guy. <laughs> how much can we push these people? Yeah, how much can we push these people, you know, and this is all real. And obviously it is, but, um, but yeah, you, you have to do normal things. I think that's my, that's been my, uh, way out of having too many, you know, thoughts running wild in my, my head. So my break is doing the dishes, <laughs> nice. um, like a nice, you know, like a practical thing where you do something with your hands or cooking. I mean. Or because I live in, in this beautiful city, uh, just taking advantage of that in a way that some people maybe who live here don't do, you know, going for a, a beer after work or coffee or going to see some place I haven't seen before. Um, yeah, you have to stay, if you, if you want to stay sane during these extraordinary times, you have to do normal things, things that make you feel like, oh, there's a, there's a normal life that exists. And talk to people as well. I think that's very important, you know, because most people feel the same way. Mm-hmm. They just maybe are afraid to talk to the other people about it because they they fear that uh, they're the only ones feeling these emotions. Yeah, and it's, I, I feel you. I, I I I feel very similar with everything you just said, and I think especially after. After this, these couple of years of with the lockdowns and stuff, everyone got so was so isolated for so long. I, I, I think myself included, we're all like having to relearn how to socialize again. It, it is like a muscle that atrophies, and if you don't use it, you lose it. And I'm I'm still seeing this this period of time where it's like everyone's. It takes a little bit of a push, you know. I got really comfortable just going through my process. A lot of days I do my work here in my room. And if I'm feeling ambitious, I'll, I'll get out and go for a run or something. But, uh, the social spots, you know, are, are less, uh, takes more of an effort to like go out even for me to like go out and have a beer or something. It's like, Oh, but my room, my house is so comfortable. You know, I can, so I, I think that, uh, that community is really important. And, uh, you know, that's, it's one thing that I'm definitely trying to still develop as a freelance professional, as I'm doing my video. And, uh, I was just talking to my friend about this last night, who, who's one of my colleagues that we're all kind of these like lone wolf professionals. And it's not, you know, when you work in an office or you work for an institution, you're going to have naturally the people at your job that you gravitate towards and you connect with, and maybe you go get drinks or you, you build traditions, you watch the game together on Sundays or whatever. Um, and I'm still, you know, I'm still early in my career, but I, I've been recognizing that that's something that I'm not getting. That's very important to me, which is like, like that feeling of community. Mm. Like, Hey, you know, we can all get together and we can share what's hard, for us in our careers and provide guidance. And 
to it just talk shop as it feels good sometimes. I'm sure you have you have that with you know fellow journalists and uh, sure. and, and all that. And I'm I'm curious when you you know this is a pretty standard question I feel like for any journal- journalist, but what does your process look like? Uh, like how do you write a story? What does that process look like for you from like the pitch to the release? So there's, there's many different processes because uh, there's many different types of stories. There's the, the quick and dirty ones, you know, where you have an idea in the morning and then you turn it in in the afternoon and it's done. You talk to one or two people about an idea that you got or something you read and, and then it turns into an article. And then there's like the more complicated stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for, for instance, like for the the French elections, I wanted I wanted to go on a lot of like uh, how do you call it in American English uh, reportage, as they say in French. So you went you go somewhere and you do a report on you know on the ground somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wanted to do a couple of different ones, and and so I had to organize it before. And then first you have to come up with the idea. Then you have to figure out what's going on in that area. Then you have to figure out who to contact. Then you have to convince them to talk to you. Then you have to, you know, organize to talk to other people in, in the area. So I did two different stories. One was going to like a small French town in the old like coal mining area in the north of France, mm-hmm. which is uh, which was basically abandoned after the the coal mining stopped. You know, they didn't know what to do with themselves in that area. And this one city, which is in the middle of these like mountains of stuff they pulled out of the coal mines back in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, that actually created these like black mountains, looks like something out of uh, Lord of the Rings or something. Mordor. And then you, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then you have these like little French towns in the middle of, of these black mountains. Um, it's actually on the UNESCO World Heritage List now. Um, but there's there's one city here, there in this like kind of uh, you know depressed area that said okay we're going to do something else. So they put like you know uh, sun panels on the churches. They uh, invested in like uh, yeah renewable energy for the city. They said okay we're going to do fifty percent or thirty percent uh, you know organic uh, farming and so on. We're going to keep some of the traditions that we have from the old days, from the mining days, some of the thing that, things that were important to us, such as the community that is around you know, these mining villages where everyone was like really closely knit together. So we're going to keep that, but we're going to mix it with something that looks a little bit more to the future. Uh, there's a green mayor in the city. And, and so it's like I was trying to do like a positive story about you know something that can give you hope in an area where maybe things look a little bit uh, bad because they, the rest of the cities in that area, uh, yeah, they have high unemployment and so on. But that took like, you know, four days to organize, to figure out who's the mayor, who's his assistant, how do I call him? Okay, does he know somebody else that I should call before? And then organizing, you know, to bring a photographer uh, and go there for two days, finding out which hotel to stay in and so on. Mm-hmm. And then also organizing the next trip directly after that. You know, how much time do I use here, and how much time do I use on the other thing? Which was uh, 
for many years it's been like a, a refugee uh, migration crisis in a city called Calais on the, um, the French uh, shore uh, right next to uh, the UK. Yeah, it used and, to be part of England, right? Uh, I think there was for, a lot for of... For a like, brief period of time. For, for, for a brief period, there was a, there was a whole like Jean d'Arc thing going on. And yeah, it was a... I just remember is, watching that show, Tudors. You ever remember that show? Mm, it was like about like mm. the Henry VIII or whatever. And they were always talking about Calais. Yeah. <laughs> But now they still they still talk about Calais, the bridge, but it's like an area where all the immigration comes from, and you know you have small boats going across, and it's super dangerous because you can have very high waves, uh, yeah, storms, and so on. So I mean, people die from doing this, uh, and they still come, and they live in these really rundown camps in the area, you know, in small tents and uh, sanitary conditions. You cannot imagine, you know, like really really bad um and they, the police and these people they fight all the time and and it's a really tough place to be uh, as a human being especially if you you know escaped from afghanistan or syria or something so i wanted to go there and do like a report also and go see where they live these people and talk to them and hear about their stories and where they come from and why do they want to go to england because that's that's something that maybe we don't understand as much either because I mean, England is probably not better than France. Mm. Um, I mean, they speak English and maybe that helps, but, and they have a larger like black market for employment and so on. But besides from that, you know, it's not that much easier. Um, so to, you know, you have to think about these things in advance. You have to contact people in advance when you go somewhere as a journalist, when you, actually go out into the real world you cannot just walk out your door and then hope to find the right people to talk to it takes organization and it takes planning and it takes uh patience <laughs> so um, <clears throat> and build I'm and then, sure you have to build trust which you know that's there's no yeah, standard sure. amount of time it's like you know five days and the trust is built you know it's like but, but you have to be a little bit you have to be a little bit that's the thing about it you have to be quite cynical about that you have to figure out <clears throat> how long does it take to build trust with some people you meet in a place like that mm -hmm. who've escaped from, you know, Damascus or something from a war and they've been on the run. They, you know, people have been trying to hold them back ever since they left their home. How do you build trust with these kind of people? I mean, it's not, it's not a natural thing to do if you, you know, escaped and, and, run through uh, five or six different countries on the run. Um, but you still have to kind of do that calculation in your head, like the cynical, how long do I think it will take for me to build trust with these kind of people that I don't know, I've never met. And then you have to, to think that in advance when you go to do a story like that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, do you think that, um, you know, being in France as an expatriate of Denmark does that, uh, do you think that helps people like, because you're coming in, like when you come to interview them, uh, and maybe this is just my Americanism showing, right? But you're almost like a neutral party when you're coming to interview them because you're not from within the culture. You're like, you are, but you're like, but you have like a different accent and you're, you know, you, do you think that that makes your job easier that, that you're, you know, 
Do people, sure. is it easier for people to open up knowing that you're originally from a different culture? Sure. And I mean, that goes for all the people that I talk to down here, like from the, 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 the Syrian refugees in the Calais to uh, the people in the little town in the north to like when I go to speak to politicians and so on. I mean, first of all, yeah, I'm neutral from a neutral country. <laughs> um, and secondly, Denmark has a really good reputation in, in France. You know, people have a good life in Denmark and, you know, they make a lot of money and we have green energy and mm -hmm. so on. And so they are generally friendly towards you. And they they talk about, you know, whatever cultural uh, exploits we have. There's like a TV show that's very famous in Europe called The Castle about our political system. Mm. And uh, I mean, that's been, you know, the opening line of almost every French politician I've ever met. Ah, I saw that show. Ah, and then you can talk about that. Um, that's your passport into connecting with people <laughs> sure i mean and that's just a, like cultural references like that are extremely important yeah yeah i found that when i was traveling europe just the difference between if i told people that i was from the u.s people are like oh okay you know like boo bush you know mm. uh and then if i told them that i was from california they're like whoa california like cool you know and then if I said San Francisco, they're like, oh, my God, like, I've always wanted to go there. Like, I love San Francisco. So I learned very quickly that, uh, you know, that uh, there are things about where I'm from specifically that can make it easier to to connect. I, I know I was like I was nervous when I first I wasn't that nervous. But I one of the things that was in my head when I was going to Denmark was just the fact that you know, being aware of the reputation of the U S and the way that people were going to be, you know, the assumptions they were going to be making about who I was, what my politics were, you know, how, what represented me. And so I think that, uh, you know, that is one of the, the blessings of, of this country that I live in is that we really are like 50 countries and especially living in California uh, on the global stage, there's a very specific uh, public relations association that's very local to this area. You know, like like you were saying about that TV show. I mean, I live in California. Every TV show is made here. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of opportunities. I find foreigners have a easier time understanding my accent because they've listened. Most of the accents on TV are California accents. So it... it it almost does all this work for me before I go travel. People are like, oh, yeah, I'm used to hearing that type of voice, you know? Sure. Um, I mean, and when I, when I go to England and I go to London now, I can hardly understand what people say because <laughs> what, what, the way I learned, the way we learn English in, in, in the school system and even, you know, from watching all the culture you just talked about is, I mean, it's the American way of speaking English. Mm -hmm. And then you go to England and then they go like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I, what is that person saying? And, ah, okay, you want me to, uh, you know, stamp my ticket. Okay, no problem. But, right. yeah, if you have you have strong cultural uh, soft power. Dude, definitely. you just need to watch more, uh, more fantasy, man. If you want to get the English accent, it's all – because I'm such a fan of uh... – you know, I'm a big fantasy nerd and I, I'm fascinated with all the medieval 
stories. So, uh, you know, going, I'm, I'm pretty good at hearing the British accents, you know, the farther North you get into Wales and Scotland, of course, you can meet those regional dialects that are hard to understand. But, um, I think because I've watched so many shows and movies and listened to so many audio books, I'm, you know, I have kind of a bit of that myself. Uh, I'm very familiar with it, but I did meet a couple Danes when I was studying in Denmark that had like full on British accents that I was yeah. like, wow, I thought you were British, but you know, but they, they probably studied, studied over there. Cause my mm-hmm. sister, she lived there for 10 years. And when she comes back, she also, she has exactly the same, like London accent, like, Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> like, well, can't you, can't you, can't you speak like a normal person? But it, and that's just the way, you know, she, she, she learned uh, to speak English, which is very different from, from the way I did. And actually, I went to I went to uh, Manchester a couple of weeks ago, which is fairly you know it's not the north north, but it's it's a it's a strong accent. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I just remember like every time I walk into a bar or like a breakfast place or something, and some people and someone would open up their mouth, I'd be like, "Oh, where's the dragons?" Uh, you know, I expect dragons to go along with this accent. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's they never amazing. came. That was uh, you know, I I think I told you, but I had. A couple of weeks ago, I had a couple of Danes come and visit me. And uh, it was this, my friend Peter, who was, uh, I don't know if I ever told you, but when I was in Aarhus, I uh, attended a startup weekend. When, you know, this back in 2011. And me and my friend, I think you met him, the like loud American friend of mine, Jeff. Yeah, yeah I remember that guy. Mangus. Yeah, Mangus. It's super funny because at least back then he was like a rootin' tootin' Bush supporting very right-wing American. And, uh, you know, I was very a lot more fiery politically back then. So we would get into a lot of arguments when people would ask us about American politics. But the reason we became friends was because you know, the first week in Denmark, we're, we're getting, they're taking us out to bars every night to experience the culture. And he would always get drunk and not be able to find his way home. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like my fellow countrymen, I felt like a, you know, a sense of, of uh, responsibility. So I would just bring him back and he'd sleep on my couch and did that five or six times. And it was like, okay, we're friends, you know? <laughs> and uh and we got along great it was like a great uh a great lesson that like hey this is a person too he's a good guy you know we'd only get into arguments talking politics with other people um but so we 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 went to the startup weekend together and uh and we came up with this idea for a company and went through the startup pitched it put together a team from like seven different countries and raised 250,000 Danish crowns quona and uh and it, we had this really good idea and my friend Peter when he came reminded me of this idea and I was like man like if we had kept at it we'd all be millionaires now you know like uh yeah. cuz they have you know we basically had the idea for what now is like um lonely planet or trip advisor we were trying to it was called street native and we were trying to basically do that 
Um, but back. Yeah, so the whole the whole guide thing where you you know you get someone who actually knows about <clears throat> it to tell you where to go and so on. Yeah, user generated yeah. travel, like a user generated travel platform for people. Mm. Uh, this idea being that when you go live in a city somewhere, you gain all this really specific knowledge about the customs that gets lost when you leave. And so we were trying to create a online repository for that. And I think I was still like in a party boy mode and I never really believed in the project, even though I was one of the founders. Uh, but we actually convinced all these other guys who were like way more, you know, one of them was this German professor who like wrote translation software and like you know peter was an entrepreneur so he reminded me when he came and stayed with me i was like damn that was a good idea uh but the reason what's, i brought what, him up sorry what were you gonna say yeah what's he doing now like what kind of did he become a millionaire after all or? he no not quite he 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 did start his own company and then um they were doing really well he was consulting and then i think he got hit by a bus and he had okay. to um, basically like his, he had to, you know, bankrupt the company to pay for his medical bills. Cause he had like some very extensive concussion stuff. Um, and then he was working for uh, the red cross for a long time. And I think now he's consulting with, um, you know, car carbon footprints, trying to help businesses move in a more green direction. Um, and, but it was just, the, my reason for bringing them up was I had these two Danes staying with me and every time they would talk, I'd be like, oh, the Vikings are here, you know, like it, I just, I don't know, no, I don't know if you saw the, um, the movie, The Northmen that came out earlier this year. Yeah, that like tall, very aggressive guy who really has a grudge on the guy who killed his father. Yes, yes. That's exactly. the one. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. What did you think about it when you saw it? Uh, well, I think I'm very happy I don't live in those days. Oh yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I would have, I would have been one of the guys, you know, dying in the first like six seconds of that oh, movie. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, ah, and then you die. Uh, um, what a crazy world! Huh? I think. I mean. I don't know how influenced we are today as mm -hmm. people by this period of time. I would say very little. I mean, but honestly. did it feel like from the outside perspective, like for me, it felt like a much more authentic representation of that time. I'm curious, as someone, you know, from that part of the world, did it feel that way to you too? Or was it more, did, could you see the Hollywood seams in it, you know, more, more than someone like me? No, I think like at least the, the part about, you know, also like the fights and the wars and so on being bloodier and, you know, less heroic and also smaller. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these, you know, when you watch a movie like, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or stuff about the Second World War, you see these enormous armies, like thousands and thousands of men and... And I think back in the, the days, you know, you could kind of invade a country with like 250 guys, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, a, and a couple of long ships. Uh, the fights were much smaller. You didn't need as much Boy, power. And the I think battle the of movie... Silkeborg, you know, like yeah. 200 people. <laughs> yeah. And I think the movie, is, the movie is quite good in portraying that, you know, when, I mean, I don't want to give it all away, but there's sure. a one point where he... Um, 
goes to this farm on Iceland, and then you know the the guy who owns the place, he has uh, I don't know, he has like maybe like twelve guards or twelve soldiers or something like that. I mean, that's more like the measures I think uh, that were like real for that time. You don't, you didn't have like six thousand soldiers at your disposal when you were a Viking warlord. You had maybe like yeah, twelve guys and a very very angry dog or something. <laughs> yeah, the dog was was worth at least two men. Yeah, um, yeah. I really, <clears throat> I think my favorite part of that, my favorite scene in that movie was like the portrayal of the Nordic mysticism with Willem Dafoe, who you know is not mm. a Dane, but I thought he did a good job as like this kind of shaman figure. And when they're in the cave and they eat the mushrooms, and then they're like pretending they're like wolves and they're howling. And there's this one line that stuck with me where he was like, uh, he was like, you're, you're a dog or you're a wolf. And he tells the little boy, he's like, you have to be strong enough to earn the right to be a man. You know, he's like, I know you're an animal, but now you have to go through this tribulation and claim, you know, that, claim your manhood or claim your, you know, there's something about that, 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 uh, I got fired up about. I was like, yeah, that's mm. super cool. Like, you know, I, the, um, I think that's maybe like one of the only points where I can find like a kind of relation between the society we have back home in Denmark today. And, and those days is this, the drunkness, you know, the, the degree of drunkness, like the mm. degree to which Danes will get drunk, which is <laughs> which is different from what I've seen in living in, in California or, or France. Mm. This desire to go, you know, to the complete limits of how much you can stomach and, and you know, just kind of getting out of your body almost from, from drinking beer. I think that can go back to some of that like Viking meat uh, kind of thing that we were doing back in those days. Yeah, um, and I, I, that's a very specific uh, Danish culture. I think you don't see that in in Sweden or Norway because they did very very strong regulation on alcohol. Mm. Um, but in Dan Denmark, it's it's quite easy, and that also creates these like yeah crazy scenes in the middle of the night when you see these young people just completely out of their minds. Yeah, I had that experience. You know, living there for seven months and living through the winter, especially. You know, in, in Denmark, it, there really isn't that much to do during those months. You know, it's very dark and very cold. And it really did seem like the drinking culture was uh, more than just uh, like mindless hedonism, you know, for for an outsider, for an American at first. Like that's, you know, a young party boy. I'm like, that's what it is. But I do think that there is like this something about the geography and the intense cold and the intense darkness. And you think about, you know, when you're going back all these generations to a culture that has evolved a way to get through these tough months together, it would make sense that like the dissociative, uh, that the, you know, that, that there's a, a, a place in the culture for that, you know? And, I also wonder how much of, you know, like what you were saying, the drinking culture 
is also the result of like, um, like the outlawing of psychedelics. Like, cause, cause correct me if I'm wrong, but like mushrooms, what's, what's their legal status in Denmark right now? Are they still illegal? I think they're still illegal weed as well. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I know, remember like I, Danes being very judgmental of me smoking weed. Like I had some kitchen mates in my common kitchen who are like, you smoke weed. That's so bad. That's such a, you know, and I was like, I'm from California. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a very, I mean, I think a large degree of Danes have, have done that. So right. <laughs> maybe you just ran upon like a couple of innocent girls from, from Jutland. Yeah. yeah, is, yeah, is, yeah. This is likely, um, but, but I mean, yeah. So alcohol has always been the drug, you know, Mm-hmm. I think it's changing now. I think young people in Denmark are doing drugs now way more than when I was, you know, growing up. Mm. Like when I was growing up, as you say, I think smoking a joint or something was like the, whoa, he's doing that, you know, yeah, at a party. Whereas I think they are not as bad as American teenagers or young people, mm. but yeah, getting there from what I'm hearing. I haven't lived in the country for eight years mm -hmm. now, so I'm just uh, relying on on my sources uh, back home but um totally actually i think they're moving away a little bit the young people in denmark today from alcohol towards like uh, yeah harder stuff mm. yeah i found that like at least in this country um the areas that have more of that are a little more relaxed towards psychedelics themselves mushrooms lsd the cactus uh the kind of these i guess you know, psychedelics is the umbrella term but it's a different a different uh it's like these substances that are not so dissociative but they're more like intensely introspective um that changes the culture and there is like less of a drinking culture as a result and then you have parts of the country where like the marijuana laws are much stricter. And that's where you see like more like of the harder drugs, the opiates, the meth amphetamines. Um, and a lot of it is like the, you know, the results of this failed drug war that we continue to throw money at and we continue to fund and we continue to push on the rest of the world. And it's becoming more and more clear I mean, it's been clear to me for my whole life, but I think that as a society, people are starting to wake up like, hey, this thing isn't working. And, and you know, when I go outside of the country and I see the effects of it, you know, I've been going down to South America, Central and South America for the last four years. Uh, I'm like, man, like you see so much of the suffering in the world as the result of this policy that we put in place in like the, the 40s and 50s that has ruined a lot of people's lives and has, you know, uh, I have a point about that, which is interesting because as you said, you know, the U S is uh, more than 50 different States. And so at the same time, you know, your country is also one of the one that has advanced the most when it comes to, you know, legalizing marijuana and so on. You know, so you have the two spectrums, you have like mm -hmm. the complete, you know, like anti, anti, uh, let's go to Colombia and, nuke some uh, drug dealers and then you have like uh, the, the other side which is uh, 
you know, go into a shop and buy, you know, high quality products or so on. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's one, and one of the reasons why the U.S. is such a mystery to us Europeans is the diversity of all the different stuff you can, you can find there. You know, you have mm -hmm. the anti-drug, you know, the war on drugs, so on. And then you have the complete, you know, other side, which is uh, into like uh, maybe opening up more towards the, and we don't have that kind of stuff in, in Europe. I mean, there's some countries that have, you know, legalization, Portugal and so on, but mm -hmm. not, in, not to the same degree. And I mean, we're not talking about even doing the stuff that some of the, the states in the U.S. have gone right. to already. Yeah, and that is, that is a good point that, you know, it's important noting that federally, you know, it's still, there's still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in prison for having a joint on them or for, you know, even in like a state like California where these, these marijuana companies are making billions of dollars, mm. there's still people sitting in prison for having something as small as a joint, you know? And so it's, I think that's where a lot of the hypocrisy comes. We have political leaders who talk about jokingly about smoking weed in college. And yet they are also some of the people that are responsible for, for putting so many people into prison. There's all these perverse incentives. Um, you know, when it comes, we have private prisons in the U S which is something that I think is kind of undeniably evil. And I don't think you guys have that in Europe. Um, no, but I think you have, you have private many things that we don't yeah, have in Europe. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, the, the, we are like this kind of grand experiment of, of trying to create a nation out of the melting pot uh, of diverse opinions and backgrounds and, and goals. And certainly in Europe, there's, there's a more of, you know, kind of a homogenous mix. I think it's changing like everywhere, but, um, it, we have, you know, also, we have a lot of conflicts within our countries, and we have some of the same movements as you see in the U.S. You know, we have a quite a strong, you know, extreme right uh, mm -hmm. showing in, in many elections in, in Europe. And also you have on the left a very strong, you know, uh, as you call it in France, extreme left, uh, mm -hmm. you know. So that we have, you know, a stretching of the... The political landscape, which we didn't have before, before those back in the eighties or seventies, those con those parties would get maybe like three, four percent of the vote maximum, and now they are, you know, running for office. Um, and also, we are in the process, maybe unwillingly, as a Europe, as a continent, towards you know a more federal system, whether we like it or not, because of the menaces that we are facing right next to us in the form of Russia. You know, we've been relying for many, many years on the protection of the U.S. when it came to comes to security. Yeah, um, we haven't spent a lot of money on on, on arms and, and so on and military. And now we are coming to the reali realization that that you know, this guy he's 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 probably you know we have to do something in order to to mm -hmm. counterbalance this. And uh, the U.S is focused on China and uh, Asia and so on. So maybe this time, you know, they're not going to just come over to, to save us. So we are in the, in the midst of building a more federalized Europe mm -hmm. 
in a situation what, what where does I that think, word mean to you because i've heard it used i always get confused by the term federal because i've heard it used almost in contradictory ways depending on the context but i'm curious in your mind um when you're using it in that in this context what is uh what is it, what does that mean to you to me it means stronger central power okay centralizing uh <clears throat> centralizing power and also centralizing um on some subjects, decision making and uh, sovereignty. You know, you put together your different countries' sovereignty, and in that way, you build a stronger foundation. But you lose, you know, a lot of what you call like you know close democracy, where you you see you now you see in Denmark you see the politicians biking to parliament, for instance. Right. So yeah. You see them on the street. You can meet them in the shops and so on. Um, but you're not gonna randomly run into like a member of congress in the u.s or or no, it's one of the, know. i think it's one of the big problems with our system <clears throat> it's interesting because i've heard the term like federalism or federalized also used you know to describe a more uh how do i describe it it's like a more libertarian system in the sense that like like a federal like federalism meaning that we're 50 states rather than one uh, um. unified country, um, <clears throat> which I do think, you know, I do see the obvious benefits in, in the dynamic that you or just maybe not benefits, but the, the motivation or desire for security in, in centralizing power. Yeah, but it also, it's also what you sacrifice that- you know, I just see the potential when you, whenever you're centralizing authority for, uh, you know, the, the loss that for corruption, for the loss of the ability of people to actually participate. I know we have that, you know, in this country, it's kind of, it's gotten insane in the last, you know, two decades. And it's, it's many of the same fears that people in Europe have, you know, there's a, a lot of people who don't want this, who don't want to move towards a more, um, federal system or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, you know, who, who want to keep their, you know, nations uh, intact, keep them the same way they are already. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's a, it's not an easy process, but when it comes to like military threats and security and so on, um, there's a strong push towards centralizing decision making or at least putting together our forces uh, more and this is a lot of i mean i write a lot of stories about this stuff it's not just military security it's also you know environmental climate regulation it's um yeah it's just the, the whole whole thing where when you act more countries together when you do like let's say in the US for instance if you do from you know the, the federal government regulation on climate and energy it will be much more efficient than if you leave it to each state to do it mm-hmm. it will create a market for companies and it will push towards innovation to reach those targets that you do but some countries or some states in the US might not like it because it's hard or because you know it's it's killing off whatever they were living off let's say coal or mm-hmm. petrol or whatever and we have the same problems here in Europe that that you know some countries don't like 
decentralized decision-making because it hits them harder than the other ones. And then you have to give those countries something on another subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to give them something on a, on a financial or economic part of it, you know, uh, funds from the whatever. There's a lot of, of funds from, from, from Europe. So it's all part of a big grant deal where you try to find like, okay, I help you there, you scratch my back there, and then you do a the deal. The politic. <laughs> sure. Which I think is, that the, uh, I I think that the the you know for for me to play the the devil's advocate or the argument that maybe the the other side would make with regards to you know these kind of sweeping centralized decisions would just be that you know and this is probably nowhere more evident than in the U.S. a lot of those you know sweeping large let's say you're talking about green energy or um you know, these big political decisions that are made to serve efficiency, you know, rather than rolling it out state by state, it really incentivizes or it really ends up benefiting the large corporations more than it's easier for Amazon to go green in, in, in six months or in a year than for, you know, some small mom and pop, smaller or mid-sized business that's operating with really thin margins. And I think that that's where, um, a lot of the cre- critiques get is is when you have a government like ours where there's so much distance between representative and constituent, uh, and and when you have a system where the the corporations and the government are kind of interchangeable now at this point, um, a lot of these big centralized authority decisions aren't necessarily being made in the interests of most people. They're, you know, it's it's serving the you know, almost by design, the, you know, the interests of these large corporations, these large companies. And, you know, it's, it would be my worry. I'm sure it happens in, in Europe as well. Um, but my sure. worry, if, you know, it, that's sure. kind of the trade-off with, with, uh, with centralizing everything. And, and another trade-off is that, you know, and you've seen that too in the U.S., what happens if that power, you know, belongs to somebody we don't right. like? <laughs> Totally, totally. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, it's, I mean that's that's uh, you shouldn't have more power yourself than you can tolerate giving to your opponent. Right, and that's how the system is supposed to be designed. Right, that that we have enough faith in the people that we disagree with to uh, to give them power, like to be to tolerate them coming into power because that's kind of how the system is supposed to be right whether you're on the right side of the spectrum or on the left side of the spectrum there's that mutual respect that like hey we all you know we're all in a country that has inherent values and just because you have differences in how it should be done we all agree on what the core values are of our nation um but also we've designed this system of government so that it can never get that bad if someone does get into power who is a tyrant or who is terrible, like, you know, like you just said, we've, we've made our own in, in this country, we've made our own executive branch. So kind of overpowered that, you know, a lot of my friends who are pushing right now on the left side for, you know, this more and more power, you know, to be centralized 
you know, with the best intentions of like, hey, we can do all these great things with this. We can push through these climate initiatives. We can push through these social reforms. You know, even if I may agree uh, in spirit with what their ambition is, I'm like, hey, but you always have to play the counterfactual. What is this power going to look like in the hand of someone, you know, who is cynically taking advantage of it or who even you just disagree with like you got to be prepared for uh for it to for the blade to cut the other way you know and, and that's like the whole discussion about the deep state and all that i mean basically there's also just that's why you know they did constitutions back in the day you know like to try to make sure that it couldn't it. go too far but yeah. i mean that's that's the problem is that that always runs up against the desire for people on the let's say the liberal on the left wing to have big change you know the whole obama area and we want change now we want mm -hmm. it to happen now and then when it doesn't happen everyone's disappointed mm -hmm. and i mean let's say that you know trump ran on a promise of change big change now i guess you know the people who voted for him are also disappointed that it didn't go further right <laughs> Well, yeah, because, it's, nobody's really getting their interests met in this current system. And, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's that's frustrating. That's the frustrating part about, you know, democracy. And it's the same in France. But but here, people like it most when the government can't really act too much. <laughs> right, totally. That's kind of where I've come to. And, and, you know, I think especially living through these, you know, even the, the more gentle but still uh, troubling lockdowns that we had in our country. I, I, I definitely started exploring what, you know, the, the philosophy of libertarianism and, and listening to more of those arguments and kind of where I've come to right now is what this, this thing that they're calling minarchy, which is kind of this idea that government, um, you know, it, the be the best government is the one that's kind of like just taking care of the bare essentials, you know, like, the post office and uh you know i do even though i am like you know i have these kind of libertarian beliefs i do believe in a strong safety net because that's my story my family we we wouldn't be around if it wasn't for that and i do think that it's important that we take care of of people that's that is one of the functions uh, of a government but um but i think that you know the the problem comes from like, you almost have to design the government to never be able to get that scary. Like how do we design it, it so that it, you know, everyone's like kind of dissatisfied, but like, it's never like terrifying people, you know? And, you know, like, like you said, and, and it, I think it works. <laughs> I think it's easier in a country like Denmark that has, you know, six, six million people. Uh, you can't see 14 different political parties are running for parliament now. Right. You know, which is cool. I mean, you guys have coalition government too, right? So it's like yeah. we are, we're stuck in this two-party system where it's like bad and awful, you know. <laughs> and nobody's really satisfied with any of it and it's it's become so impossible to get any real uh not just real change, but even just stability, which is I think what a lot of people are just aching for now is like how do we just make politics boring again you know like it, it's 
can we get back to life? Can we, you know, can we get away from everything having to be sensational at any <clears> given <throat> moment? You know? Well, it's also just that I think most people don't really want to be interested in politics. Yeah. You know, if they could choose, they would just live their lives without ever, you know, knowing who's the president or, you know, what's the political fight about this week. That's the American dream, I think, man. I think that's the dream. Yeah, that's where that's where people want to go to. Um, but like, how do you? Do you... <clears throat> yeah. How how do we how do we you know combine this thing about having governments that can't really act too much with handling the humongous enormous crises that our times have confronted us with? Mm-hmm. How do you how do how do you how do you you know deal with the climate issue without? you know, doing big decisions, radical decisions that actually right. change stuff. Yeah. And that's the that's the hard thing about it. You, you can't say, let's just see what, uh, you know, the local community comes up with. You have to do big industrial straight, uh, scale changes to society if you want to change the tra- trajectory that we're on. Mm-hmm. So how do you give power to, you know, governments and so on on this one subject without giving them because I mean that's interlinked with everything else we do as well, climate and energy and so on. So that becomes very hard to control if you give that kind of power to politicians. That's right. necessary to do yeah. what we need to do. So it's a it's a yeah catch twenty. What do you call it? Catch twenty four. Catch twenty two. Catch twenty two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's what, that's what we're trying to, I think that's the global experiment, right? That we're trying to figure out right now. And, um, I certainly don't have the answers, you know, for, for all that stuff I get, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure that you're more than anyone aware of how much, um, like how difficult it is even to agree on what the facts are these days when, it's be, the information has become so democratized. Uh, there is not an agreed set on set, agreed set of facts. So it's to talk about any of these things. Uh, you know, you almost have to have a, a, a prior conversation where you're like, all right, can we, can we get to a place where we can at least agree on some of, some of the facts so that then we can come from a place of good faith and like, okay, we accept that this is what it is. Now we can have opinions about that, right? And I think so often uh, political discourse breaks down into like, you know, the argument of like, my facts are more facty than your facts. And, you know, uh, you you throw in a, a corporate mechanism where uh, people have become more and more... the The trust, the trust in our institutions in our information institutions, at least in the U S has never been lower. And it's both, uh, it's both exciting because I'm seeing some really incredible reporting being done on smaller levels. Um, and then it's also incredibly destabilizing because most people, uh, are like, like we were saying, are less inclined to go seek out a voice they can trust and, I think a lot of people just get overwhelmed and they're like, I want to just go to TikTok and watch like some dog videos right now. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, or, the, or the person who tells me that I, you know, I'm right. Yeah. I mean, that, that feels much more comfortable. Totally. I, yeah. The echo chamber effect, right? Sure. 
So there was a, there was a lockdown during the the U.S. elections uh, the last time. Okay. Um, and I was watching it in my bed, and I made a point of saying, "I'm going to watch this thing on Fox News." Nice. To see, you know, what are they saying? What's the story? Um, what numbers are they running? Mm-hmm. What do their faces look like? That was a good experience because that kind of gave me back a little bit of trust in the media, even those guys. Yeah, because they would they would still do to a certain degree factual reporting, mm-hmm. um, not the whole like uh, opinion part of it. I mean, that's complete uh, nuts what those people are saying. But but the reporting of the journalists were still fairly objective to from from my point of view. So that was good to see. You know, I was expecting to go in and see this, like you know, people just like taking shots at pictures of uh, Joe Biden on mm-hmm. national TV or something, and that was not at all the, what I saw. Yeah, I think as to be a good journalist, you have to kind of be a natural contrarian, right? Like you're supposed to be a little have that voice in your head when someone's telling you, someone who has authority is like, this is how it is. You almost need that little voice that's like, is it? You know, like I'm gonna have sure. to, you know, I'm gonna have to be naturally skeptical until, uh, you know, until I can see both sides of it. And I, I know for myself, I've had to design in the last few years uh, my own information uh, diet, where you know I listen to probably three or four. Uh, podcasts it's usually where i get my news now um and i have like my super left like social democrat podcast i have my like right kind of libertarian podcast i have my like left of center like kind of mainstream podcast and they all disagree but like i feel more comfortable like listening listening to a conversation about a topic and then listening to another one after that that's saying the exact opposite and being like okay like at least now i can see what what the arguments are on, on both sides and then i can ask myself given though given like someone really making their argument with rhetoric strongly and then someone making the opposite argument i at least i feel like i'm in a place where i may not have you know the right answer. I may not like come to a place, but at least I've heard uh, representations of the way that different people are thinking about the idea or the problem. Yeah. But I think that's, I mean, that's the way to do it in our modern internet age. But I think most people got used to, you know, just seeing stuff that they agree with and that goes for left wing and and right wing, you know, you Mm -hmm. will just seek out the stuff that gives you a good feeling that makes you feel like you're watching uh, nice episode of something on Netflix, you know, confirmation of what you already think, because yeah. it's not nice. It's not nice. It's not a good feeling to watch something telling you you're, you're wrong. <laughs> right. Do you, in your, when you're <clears throat> writing a story or is that like a part of your process where you're, I mean, I know you said you're at a, like a left of center publication. Are you, do you have like by design when you're researching for a story, are you looking into these like sources from across the political spectrum or does that often, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing that there's also you're writing for a specific like political slant too. So you're going to have to 
speak to your audience, but I'm just curious if that's part of your process. Yeah, but I think speaking to the audience is more about uh, the subjects that we choose than the reporting, you know. Okay. Um, I mean, for me, good journalism is uh, not a left or right wing thing. It's uh, something you learn and you it's a trait that you do. Mm-hmm. And I also have the, 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 the good thing about it is I used to work for a right wing newspaper. Nice. Uh, I used to work for three years for a business uh, newspaper on the conservative side of politics in Denmark, uh, in Brussels, reporting about business news and so on. So I have a really good idea about you know what the two different sides think and how they make their arguments and and it's good to know when you write something about you know environmental law or strikes in France there's a lot of strikes in this country all the time um, mm-hmm. it's good to know you know what why is the other side making the arguments they're making where does it come from how do they make their calculations to get to where they go and mm-hmm. and what's their way of thinking that makes you write better articles and, and you put those points in the article as well mm-hmm. yeah to remember remember that there's people on the other side who have good faith reasons for believing what they believe, right? Sure, sure. I mean, when I was working for the for the business newspaper, I was also trying to put in, you know, people from, uh, let's say, whatever, Greenpeace or something into the, the articles to have both sides of, of the argument in, in, in the articles. But I would still write it from a point of view where it was about, you know, the conditions for business in Europe and uh, how can they make money and what's their, um, you know, what obstacles do they have? What opportunities do they have from European legislation? Let's say one company might be very interested in the size of windows. You know, if we have a standardized size of windows and it happens to be their side, they can make a lot of money. And that's what you know, lobbying in, in a place like Brussels is about the same as in, in Washington. Um, so if you understand that uh, mechanism and they're not doing that because they're bad people, they make great windows and actually those windows will help you save energy and, you know, help the climate and so on. So they're not bad guys, mm-hmm. but it's just, uh, there's just a lot of different reasons why people do things. It's not always just one thing, you know, it's not just like they're greedy or they want a right. left, left-wing revolution. You know, it's, most people are pretty sincere in what they do and you have to figure out what the arguments are and, and put them in your newspaper and have them in, take them into consideration when you write. That's yeah, that's beautiful. Do you, do you engage in steel manning often? Do you know this concept? What is that? No. So like you I'm sure you've heard of the straw man argument that's used in political or in, in journalism very often where you're like kind of, you're building up the counter argument in a very flimsy way. So it's easy to attack it. So we'll yeah. Look. Yeah. So yeah. So you say to the left wing, Oh, so you want to, you want to destroy all enterprises in the exactly. country. Exactly. Or the yeah. right wing, you only care about money and, and you know, yeah. it's all mercenary. So the idea of the steel man is to do the opposite, which is to really make the strongest argument for the counter to your point. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. You're really like, coming at it from like this person, they must have a really good reason. Let's explore that. And then 
because I'm confident enough in my position, I can, you know, my argument's actually stronger if I'm fairly representing the value of the counter argument. Sure, and it's, it, it creates better journalism as well because it challenges the sources that you're talking to on, on both sides. Sometimes there's three or four sides actually mm-hmm. to an argument. Yeah. And, and then so the stronger you put, you know, the arguments of the people who are opposed to what they're saying, the better answers you get from them usually. Um, so yeah, yeah, sure. I, I try to do that all the time, trying to find the, the strongest arguments from, from whoever is against or for something and use them to challenge the people who say something else. That's great, man. Yeah. I think so often, uh, most people who have even people that have like the strongest beliefs or, you know, feel like they have a grasp on the issues. I feel like most people are like one good conversation away from changing their mind. You know, like if, if you've ever been in a dynamic like that, where you are at a bar and you're having a drink with someone and you start talking about one of these subjects, it's like, I've never talked to like a businessman about like why, you know, I just assumed that it was a, a selfish reason that this company is doing things in this way. But you you have like a real person in front of you and suddenly you have this human interaction and you're like, this is a good person. This guy's not doing things. <clears throat> you know, th- there is a good reason. I just haven't been aware of it or whatever. Or vice versa, you know, on the left, you're like, oh, this person is just a communist and they want power. They want control. And then you sit down with them and you're like, Oh, you really care about people. Or there is a really like, you know, I think we've, we get so pigeonholed into demonizing the other. And, and that's really what I've been trying to be about in my communication. I, I, I agree very much with it, but I would also say that I have also met communists who just wanted power yes. and businessmen who just wanted money. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That's yeah. Yeah, I'm making the devil's well. ar- argument, right? You know, devil's advocate argument here. Sure. <laughs> That's awesome, Tor. Well, dude, I really appreciate your time and, and you being willing to come on the show. And um, is there anything that you're working on right now that you can talk about or you want to share, you know, before we wrap things up? Um, and- yeah, I'm going to go to Egypt for the first time in my life to cover the, the climate conference in uh November, yeah. Wow, yeah, that's next exciting. Month. Yeah, that's going to be pretty crazy. <laughs> and is it's it going to be or? It's in a place called Sham El Sheikh, which is like a beach city. Okay. Uh, I've never been to Egypt before, but they uh, they're hosting it, you know, it changes every year. Last week, last year I was in, in Glasgow in Scotland, so quite a different experience, I think. But yeah. It's going to be exciting. an interesting thing to to follow what's going on with that that's awesome and then um and then i'm hoping to come back to california sometime i hope they they do the the cup 28 in california that's right yeah for the for the world cup you're saying no 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 the next time they do the climate conference i hope oh, they the do climate in california. Con- yes yes for sure i'll, I'll, I'll come over then <laughs> you got a place to stay man you're always welcome at my place now i have a sauna so you can come get your Get your, uh, yeah. your sauna on as well. I like saunas. Uh, yeah, I do it. I did it this morning. I do it every day. But, uh, dude, it's so good to see your face. And uh, and let's keep in touch. I, 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 I feel 
I'm feeling all the familiar warmth of, uh, of getting to hang out with you back in the day. And I love that we get to keep, you know, this is my favorite thing about traveling is my international community and the, you know, the, the fact that there's like a larger family out in the world where, you know, I know that there's people who will house me and that I can house and we get to share culture and, um, and I'm really, I'm just so happy to see, you know, how your success and that you've made this cool career for yourself and that you're in, you know, just, just talking to you for this, this hour, hour and a half and hearing how your mind works. You're one of the good ones, Tor. We need more journalists like you out there. You're doing the good work, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's see what happens in 10 years. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 May you not become a demagogue, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, how can, uh, how can people uh, find your work or connect with you if you feel like sharing? I like to ask all my guests, you know, if there's what, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Well, I mean, I'm an extremely popular Twitter profile yeah. <laughs> where I write stuff in English as well sometimes. Um what's the what's the handle for people so it's it's my name t-o-r-e-k-e-l-l-e-r tor keller on twitter awesome yeah. and and your newspaper is inf- information or what's in, the name inf- information point dk okay well how do you pronounce it what's what's the danish pronunciation for it of course, it's it's kind of like you know you have to put a potato into your mouth and then try <laughs> to say something. So it's in information. Information that almost sounds French, you know. Yeah, yeah, it works in France. Maybe it's just because I've been here for in this country in France for like almost six years now. So. <laughs> Do your friends back home say you have a French accent when you speak Danish? Yeah, they make fun of me all the time. Then I go, yeah, we be be. Well, yeah, dude, I love you, man. It's good to see your face. Uh, give my love to Andreas next time you talk to him, too. I will. I will. I definitely miss that guy. And, uh, yeah. and come visit me in California. I'm trying to make it to, to Europe again eventually when I'm, you know, hopefully when I when I have uh, a little more resources to do so. Or I find, you know, I'd love to find a job out there and go do some videography in Europe. It'd be pretty awesome. So Sure. Uh, come to Paris. I'll buy you a croissant. Yes, yes. We'll go sit on the sand and eat some foie gras. Yeah. Much love, dude. Thanks for coming on the show. And uh, all the best to you. Have a good one. Take care. School. School, buddy. School. (laughs)